Hey, it's Jeremy. We'll be back with another episode of Software Sessions in a couple weeks. This week we've got an episode of Software Engineering Radio I recorded a few months ago at RailsConf with Aaron Patterson. It's about how the Ruby language runtime works. If you've ever been curious about how programming languages work under the hood, I think you'll enjoy the episode. I'll see you soon. Today I'll be speaking with Aaron Patterson. Aaron is on both the Ruby and Rails core teams and currently works at GitHub. Aaron, welcome to Software Engineering Radio. Oh, thank you. First, for people who aren't familiar with Ruby, why should they check it out? What's good about Ruby? Well, there's a lot of good things about Ruby. The reason I really enjoy Ruby is it's just super fun to program it with. Like, it's a really enjoyable language to use. But I think part of the reason it's a joy to use is essentially the consistency of the language. So in Ruby, everything is an object. You can contrast that with, say, Java, for example, that has primitive ty- has objects but also primitive types, whereas in Ruby, everything is an object. So you only have to think about that one. Like the, the mental overhead is a little bit lower, right? So I don't know. That's why I enjoy programming with Ruby. It's just it's easy to understand. So it's easy to understand and fun to use. I see. So instead of having primitive types like Java, such as Boolean and floats that have different rules than normal objects, everything in Ruby is treated the same. So you can call the same base methods. Yep. You can call methods. Yes. Everything. And it's, and it's really everything. Like classes are, are objects. Modules are objects. Everything's an object. So it's like it's just really, I think that consistency like I said, it helps you, it helps to like lower the mental overhead of using the language. So you know what to expect. You're like, what is this thing? You figure out what it is. Okay, now I can just call methods on it. I, I mean, I think that's one of the things that sort of, I think, strikes a lot of people when they start. Um, I guess specifically with Rails, which is the web framework for Ruby. Mm-hmm. There's the example of being able to use like a number, like say five, and then yeah. to be able to do dot days. Dot yes, go, yes, right? yes. That's kind of the canonical example of people yeah. saying like, seeing that going like, well, how does that work, right? Yeah. So I guess that's basically because five is a object and you're able to add. You can add methods to it. Yeah, yeah. So the no- numbers have classes. And I mean, the number five is just an instance of a instance of a, I think numeric is a class. Uh, and you can just one one thing you can do in ruby that's i think unique to the language is that you can just add methods to classes if you want to right i guess that it's a good and bad thing you can just add you like you can add methods to any classes you want to so if you you know that people can abuse that right. <laughs> so don't abuse it but um yeah that's it's a good example so you can just add like day the method days to the to the numeric class and then be like five dot days so I think one of the like one of the other defining characteristics of Ruby programming is the ability to do um, metaprogramming, which is essentially just programs that programs that write programs, right? So you, you could kind of think of it as I guess it's like code generation. Basically, you you write a program that will generate code and it evaluates it, and that's how you get a lot of the stuff in. Uh, rails like for example in your active record models when you say like has many whatever where you're setting up that relationship it's actually a metaprogrammed method active record being the object relational mapper for rails for rails yes yes and you're saying behind that single line of code there's actually a ton of code being generated yes yes and that actually a, a more simple example is 
that's not rail specific is if you write a if you write a class and you want to add um, getter and setter methods to the class you just do like adder accessor foo and that adds getter and setter methods for you uh, and it's under the hood it's really just doing metaprogram it's metaprogramming it's defining a method that returns the value and then it's defining another method that lets you set set the value in java for example if you have a class and you create like a for a person you could have like a set name and a mm-hmm. get name you have to write those functions yes but in ruby if you had a person class at the top of the class you could write adder accessor and that would generate methods on the person class, class for you yes for you to set the name and get that yep exactly yeah cool next i, I want to talk about a little bit about how ruby is uh, interpreted so what does it mean for a language to be interpreted versus compiled? So Ruby 1.8, Ruby 1.8, um, well, before Ruby 1.9, Ruby was an interpreted language. And essentially what that means is that it would parse your code and it would turn the code into an AST. Before Ruby 1.9, Ruby would build an AST, which is essentially a tree data structure. And then it would the interpreter would walk the tree data structure, executing each well, whatever was at that node in the tree would execute that particular command. So if you had a plus node, it would add the, you know, it would add the leaves or the child nodes of the plus node. So, and it would just do this for the entire parse tree of your, of your program. And then in one nine, it changed, um, Ruby got a virtual machine. And the main difference there is that the Ruby program is compiled into bytecode uh, and then the virtual machine executes the bytecode rather than walking a walking a tree data structure. And then, so when you say you, we got a virtual machine, mm-hmm. right? So does that mean that the interpreter we had before is not considered a virtual machine? I mean, I guess you could call it a virtual machine in that it's interpreting a tree. But I think the I think the difference is that you uh, the interpreter is in or before one nine that particular style is essentially walking a tree and and interpreting whatever instruction is at that point in the tree whereas the virtual machine is really trying to model an actual machine like it's a stack based machine so you generate instructions and then this machine executes the instructions for it as you would like you know your c compiler generates instructions for your cpu something more similar to that so the distinction i guess when you call something a virtual machine is that it's uh, running commands sequentially and there's a i guess a stack yes is pulling each um, instruction from yep okay. yeah yes uh, whereas if it's from a tree or it's parsing a tree then we don't call that a virtual machine i guess i guess not yeah <laughs> I mean, it's not re- it's not real. It's yeah. virtual. Yeah, yeah. Everything's virtual. <laughs> yes. yes, exactly. <laughs> so, what language was the Ruby interpreter written in? It's written in C. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so the the interpreter is written in C, and also the virtual machine is is also written in C as well. Yeah. Okay. Why is uh, C a good language for a virtual machine? Is it? I don't know. <laughs> Hopefully it was, right? <laughs> I think that's an that's an interesting question to ask. I don't know if it's good or not, but you can do you can do tricks with C that you can't do with other languages or would be difficult to do with other other languages. So, for example, one of the techniques that the virtual machine uses is a technique called direct threading. Okay. Uh where it essentially emits jump instructions rather than Typically, what you would do in a virtual machine is you have a loop that pops 
um, instructions off and then off of the read, stack. Yeah, and then read. Well, just goes through your your instruction sequences, looking at the instruction sequence, looking that instruction up in a table, mm -hmm. and then jumping to the appropriate function for that. Okay. Whereas uh, with a direct threading technique, you essentially eliminate that jump table and uh, insert these jump instructions. Like you know the offset of the function that you actually want to go to. So rather than doing the lookup in a table, you emit a jump instruction to say go, and I mean a machine jump instruction, not a not a Ruby VM jump instruction. You say go to this address and execute execute the code there, and that type of trick is something that you can do in C that maybe you can't do in you can't do in other languages. I, it may be possible, but um, it's a common trick in C. So you said like you would normally have this lookup table that tells you is that where in memory to, is that like in the stack or is that in the heap? It's going to be well that that lookup table is going to be in the heap, and essentially what it is is just the key is the key is the instruction like say the instruction for the virtual machine. Say you have like a push instruction or something. Uh, and it looks that up in the in the table, and then it says, "Okay, well, here's the function pointer to execute the execute the push instruction," and then it goes and executes that. Whereas, using this direct threading technique, you can eliminate that lookup essentially. So, like you're going through uh, a list of instructions, I guess, and you get to some kind of, I guess, machine level instruction you need to execute. Yes. And instead of looking at a uh, lookup table in the heap. You would have like an offset, a memory offset. Just, uh, I guess, would that be in the stack? Or yes. Okay, yeah, and, and then you'd say go there. Okay, so right from the stack, you would say like, okay, go to this position from where you are. Yep. And you don't need to do the lookup. You, you don't, don't need, need to do the lookup. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And oh, were you going to say something? Oh, the just the those types of like memory techniques are things that you can do. Like that's a thing you can do in C. Where I'm, I don't think you could do that in Java, for example. Maybe you could do it in Rust, but I doubt it would be safe, considered safe, right? So those types of unsafe tricks are things you can do in C. But those those are kind of, I guess, the reasons why you would use C, but at the same time, that's also why you're saying C might be... It's dangerous. Dangerous, yeah. Yes, yes, yes exactly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so it's kind of like, you know, it's a really powerful tool, and that's why everyone chooses to use it. But it's a double-edged sword, yes, yes. But it's, I mean, uh, and then the, the downsides, of course, are that C is not a very friendly language to use. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Especially considered, you know, compared to like Ruby or yeah. Python or other scripting yes, languages. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's yeah. not, like C is, C, C does not spark joy. Mm -hmm. You were saying, though, that, like, you know, is C a good language for VM? And, you know, you're kind of like, well, it is and maybe it isn't, yeah. you know. Uh, it, are there any, um, you know, alternatives, like realistic alternatives or? Wow, that's a really good question. I have not thought of it. I have not thought of an answer to that. I would say, like, from my perspective, the two two things come to the top of my head. First would be, first would be Rust. The second would actually be... Um, Scheme. Scheme. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Specifically, my favorite, my favorite scheme, which is Chicken Scheme. But Chicken Scheme essentially compiles down to C. Oh, okay. So. <laughs> okay. So, so in the end, you can't escape C. Yeah, you can't escape. You can't escape it there. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. But at least you can. At least you can write in Scheme and not in C. So the, there's that. 
<laughs> so, so is it is it writing the scheme code is a safer environment, or what? What I guess what? Why would you say that? Well, it's. I mean, writing it, writing the scheme code. I guess I don't know if you could do the um, that direct threading technique that I was talking about. I don't know if you could do that in pure, just plain old scheme. Scheme is a lot nicer to write than C is, and I think Rust is also a lot nicer to write than C is. So basically when i think about it i think about you know developer ergonomics like how hard is the language to use basically what do you think is like the main thing blocking say rust from becoming a language that you could write vms in honestly i don't think that there is anything blocking it necessarily i'm quite sure people are writing virtual machines with rust now yeah um i actually i know there's one for python yeah a, a couple of people are working on Outside of that, yeah, I mean, I, I guess right now it's a bunch of sort of toy projects, yes. you know, where people are trying to figure out, like, what is the limits of Rust? And hopefully, you know, they'll find out, like, hey, maybe maybe this is something we could use in place of C, or, or maybe we still have a ways to go, yeah. So I think, I mean, I don't, I personally don't think there's any blockers necessarily, because I think that those those toy projects will eventually turn into real things, so mainly the the blocker that I and I'm doing air quotes for your listener here listeners here the the main blocker I think is um just popularity like getting more like getting more people to use it so right that's that's the only thing so just adoption yeah like, exactly yeah I mean it'll be yeah it'll be interesting to see like you know in a few years if maybe when somebody's thinking of making a, a new language maybe they do look to Rust before they look to C yeah yeah I I personally would <laughs> <laughs> yeah if you were writing um uh aaron's ruby vm or something i like would maybe... probably go with rust okay yeah okay like i think mainly i'd say probably the reason ruby is written in c is essentially just legacy like it's been around for 25 years rust has not been around that long right <laughs> yeah 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 i mean who knows maybe if uh you know matt's the creator of ruby Maybe if he was making it and Rust was around, maybe he would have chosen it. Yes, yeah, yeah, it could be. And I think one thing I one thing I actually I know we're talking about Ruby today, but one thing I like about Rust that I think is cool is you can like so you can write stuff in Rust and you can export symbols to C from Rust. Oh, okay. So it seems possible that like for example, I could rewrite Ruby's garbage collector in Rust, but still be able to embed it within a C a C project, as long as I export C project such as Ruby, as long as I exported the right symbols. So I think that's one thing that's exciting about that language. And for those who aren't familiar with C, when you're exporting a symbol, like what does that that mean in the context of C? Uh, it just means that your C program knows, or the linker knows where the function offsets are. So you can link against it and say like, when you compile your C program, you're like, I have, there's a function in this shared library and I want to call that function and it's able to link and look it up. Okay. So you could be in your C program, like the, cause Ruby, the Ruby VM is written in C. Yeah. Um, and like you were saying, you could have calls to a garbage collector that's written in Rust and yeah. you could call those directly from C. Yes. Okay. And yep. it would have access to the actual, like exact memory locations of those calls. Yes. Okay. Yep. Got it. So starting with Ruby 1.9, you said you you introduced or Koichi, yeah, Koichi wrote a virtual machine, yep, and introduced it. Koichi, when he decided to create the the VM, 
Was there a specific reason? Was it like performance or what was the primary motivator? I mean, the main thing was for performance, but I know he also did it for his PhD thesis. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, so that, that was probably another motivating, like motivating factor. But I mean, really performance. How much like how much of a difference are we are we talking, I guess, between, you know, the interpreter versus the compilation of VM? I to be honest, I don't know. A lot. It's yes, it's like it's very much faster. Okay. <laughs> That's a good metric, yeah. Yeah. I I can't give you an exact number, but I can sure, tell you sure. it's very fast. Okay, okay. So like after you know, after he had done it and people saw the results, it's like, wow, this was this was yes. definitely worth it. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Why why is it so much faster than interpreting like going through the AST uh, versus just going from the Ruby code to the instruction sequences? Like why is that faster? It's actually kind of interesting. Ruby's compiler still has to produce an AST mm -hmm. and then it essentially takes that AST and then walks the AST and translate translates it into bytecode which the virtual machine executes. Right. What's kind of funny is that Ruby 1.8, the interpreted version, had to do the same thing except that it just stopped at the step where it came up with the the tree. So you'd produce the AST and then it would walk the AST and interpret it. Whereas it's kind of counterintuitive, but the the compiled version with the virtual machine actually has to do more work. Mm -hmm. It has to produce the bytecode. Right. But uh, you can actually, like, once it produces this bytecode, you can actually apply some uh, optimizations to the bytecode. So you can do, like, some dead code analysis, peephole optimizations. There's different types of optimizations that you can apply to this style of code that you couldn't apply to just a tree. Right. And I think on top of that, there's also other things like, I don't know how, I don't know how big a factor this is, but... A virtual machine executing bytecode is going to be more friendly for CPU caches than a in doing an AST interpret or an AST interpreter because you have like memory all over the place. So I'm not sure what percentage that plays into the or what percentage that factors into it, but it's there. So there's various different factors that make a virtual machine faster. Just because like the nature of sequential instructions is kind of a very well-known problem, I guess, and people have come up with all sorts of ways to optimize, optimize it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yep. Okay. Yeah, so we can take those, basically take those instructions and then apply known, like, known common optimizations for those to the Ruby code. And then this virtual machine that we're referring to, I believe it's referred to as uh, yet another Ruby VM, right? Yes. Okay. Yarv, yeah. Right. Okay. And this was also written in C, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. One thing I found sort of interesting is before I was actually doing research for this interview, you know, I always thought of Ruby as an interpreted language, right? Like mm -hmm. I, I always thought like, okay, you, uh, you write your Ruby code and then the interpreter is reading your code and as it reads the code, you know, through the AST, um, you know, things are executing on the machine. Mm -hmm. But this is more like, it seems a little bit more like Java, if I'm not wrong, where with Java, right, you write your Java code, you use a compiler to compile it down to Java bytecode, the dot class file, yeah. you run that in the VM. Mm -hmm. One thing I was wondering is, you know, in, in Java, you, you compile down to the class code. In .NET, you compile down to, I believe it's called the uh, 
common intermediate language. So mm -hmm. there's like a, um, they have their own sort of bytecode, I guess you could call it. Yep. Um, but in Ruby, when you run a program, you just type Ruby space and you have like, you know, your program, mm -hmm. right? So, so why is there not like the same sort of bytecode compilation step? It does, it does have the bytecode compilation step. It does all the same steps, but it never generates the intermediary file. So it does take your it takes your program and it does convert it into bytecode. It's just that it keeps that bytecode in memory and then uh, immediately executes it. Okay. So you there's there's actually an interface where you can um, say compile a file and actually produce a produce an intermediate file if you want to. It's just that mm, people don't really do it. Do Do you know if there's any specific reason why like with Ruby you you don't tend to do that, but with other languages you do? I think because, well, I would say it's because Ruby's origins are just a scripting language. You just, you just run it, right? So nobody wanted to add that extra step. Like you just want to run your code. Yeah, right? yeah. So I, I guess that's the reason. And I guess like that isn't stopping like startup time or making it like too long or anything. Well, that, actually, that's that's an interesting question because it does. It does slow startup time. Okay. Like, I think that's an interesting, an interesting issue with this setup. So previously, we were talking about Ruby one eight having to go through essentially the same steps as Ruby one nine, but Ruby one nine has to do more because it's converting it to bytecode and then executing the bytecode, which means that the virtual machine has to be fast enough to make up for the the extra work that it's doing. Okay. Right. Right. So that parse and compile time it is overhead that's being added to your program so actually somebody made a gem called bootsnap that what it does is you add this gem to your rails application and it will um it will compile all of your ruby code into intermediate files like we were talking about and then when you boot your application rather than evaluating the the text rb files it'll actually load those load those binary files and we found that it takes off maybe what was it? I don't remember exactly. It's like 20% or something like that overhead. Okay, yeah. so 20% uh, reduction in the startup time. Yes, okay. yes, yes. Okay, so that's like, that's something that's specific to Rails, though. No, no, no. This is, I mean, you could use this, like they designed it such to be, as to be put in with a Rails application, but this technique you could use, you could use with any library that you wanted oh, okay. to. Interesting, yeah. So it's like, in a way, people didn't do it because it didn't seem like a problem. Yeah. And then, I guess, startup times, maybe specifically with Rails, were a little high. Yeah, yeah. I mean, typically, like, a typical Rails application is going to have a way more code than, mm -hmm. you know, just some script that you're writing, right? right? Right, right. So in those cases where you have a large amount of code, that, that time does actually make a difference. So that's a case where you'd want to use it. Cool, yeah. So another thing I want to talk about is we've been talking about how you take the Ruby code, convert it to an AST, compile it down to what? What was the sort of bytecode called? Or there is no name. There's no for name. It. Okay. Just bytecode. Okay. Just bytecode. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So the bytecode. <laughs> so so the um, bytecode gets run by the VM. Mm -hmm. um, so this is a little different than like say C, right? Because C, you write your code and it actually compiles down to machine code. Yeah. Why would a language choose to compile to virtual machine instructions versus directly to machine code? 
So so usually usually you compile down to like this is this is the promise of the Java virtual machine uh, is you would yeah. compile down to basically a common bytecode that right. you could run on any like you could take it anywhere. So you take your class files, make your jar file, and you can run it on any machine as long as you have a Java VM. Right. So that's I think that's like the main so I guess portability is one of the main main selling points of uh compiling to bytecode, which Ruby's I think one of the things is that Ruby's the the bytecode that I told you about that you can generate it is not portable. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so, so maybe maybe not a real <laughs> real reason in Ruby's case. I yes, guess. It's yeah, not, yeah, that's not an actual reason yeah. in Ruby's case. So the the dream came real for Java. Yes, but okay. Yes, yes. Like, uh, for example, if you have a, um, it's. The bytecode that you dump, if you dump it in Ruby on a uh, little Endian machine, it won't work on a big Endian machine. Oh, really? Yes. Interesting. So it's it's okay. not the Endianness is like you can't do it. You got to run it on the same. If you're gonna do that, you need to run it on the same architecture. Which it, I mean, we use this technique. Turns out in practice, it's like fine. Like I'm not running, you know, no, nobody is doing this. Nobody is running on like, nobody is developing on little Indian and then pushing, pushing to a big Indian in production. <laughs> Plus, I guess, like you said, the people typically don't do pre-compilation to, you know, no. the, uh, the bytecode no, and then don't. copy it to no. another machine. Right. No. So no. it doesn't actually end up being an issue, I guess, in that yeah, regard. Yeah. Right? In practice, it's not actually a problem. Uh, but we do like the main advantages of turning it into a bytecode for, for Ruby are essentially the optimizations. Versus doing the interpretation. Yes. Right. Yep. Okay. But versus compilation to machine code. Uh, for co Yeah, compilation to machine code, it's better, like, I mean, if you could compile it to me, compile completely to machine code, that might run, that might actually execute faster. But I guess the idea is that we have some things that are specific to our like our language that it would be nice if a if a chip implemented this instruction that would be great but we want to have more complex instructions than what a, a chip supports the other the other thing is that in this case like our vm is a stack based uh, vm rather than a register based one which is different than machines like actual machines actually work so there's that issue too can you like kind of briefly explain what the difference is between like a stack based and a register based yeah so the stack based the stack based one basically each instruction pushes and pops off of a off of a stack so you'd say like uh, for example, if you do the add and if you want to add two numbers, you would push the two numbers onto a stack. So you'd have three instructions. You'd say push one, yeah. push two, and then you'd add, and then add would pop the two off and and push the new value on. Similar to an HP calculator, okay, or an RPN, you know, reverse Polish notation calculator. If anybody out there uses those, which I did in school. <laughs> Whereas, whereas a register-based machine is where you'd say like, okay, I'm going to read and write from particular registers. So you'd say like, I'm going to put this number in one register, put this other number in a different register, and then I'm going to call the add 
like the add instruction, which reads out of those and then puts into puts the results into a different register. So there there is no concept of the stack, right? You're mutating you're mutating registers rather than like pushing and popping off. Oh, the stack. okay. So you're you're fi- you have to think about the actual position of everything. Yeah. Whereas with the stack, like it's just going to kind of grow get, and, grow shrink. and yep. shrink, and you don't have to worry about like where on the machine yes. that stack is stored. Yep. Yep. Okay. So that, that, that's one difference is that the since Ruby's VM is a stack-based one, which is different from an actual machine, we can't do that step. Okay, interesting. Another thing I wanted to talk about is Ruby has, I believe, there's two separate APIs. There's a core API and a standard library. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah. What's the distinction between the two? The main distinction is that... Um, the core or the standard library, you have to require it. Like you have to specifically say, like I'm gonna use this. Whereas the core stuff is just you don't need to require anything. It's just immediately available. Okay. Okay. So the standard you have to manually add it in, yep. even though it is shipped it's with shipped with Ruby. Yeah, it's shipped with Ruby, but you have to opt into those functions, basically. Yeah. One thing I've I've also kind of wondered is how much of the core API and the standard library are written in Ruby and how much of it is C? I'd say like core is probably 99% C. Uh, and the standard library is probably, I would say, I'm just estimating here, maybe like 80% Ruby. Oh, wow, okay. So the standard library stuff is mostly just Ruby code that you can load and use, whereas the core stuff is just mainly C components. Okay. And the core library, that would be like really foundational stuff like strings. Strings, and dates. Dates, numbers. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And then things like, uh, say, the JSON parser. That's um, that would be in the standard, standard library. library. Yeah. Okay. And then so if somebody wanted to contribute to Ruby and they only knew Ruby, like then it's actually possible for them to look at the standard library. Yes, that's correct. Oh, yep. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Very cool. You're on both the Ruby and the Rails core teams. Yes. Do you program more in C or more in Ruby when you're doing that that kind of work? <laughs> it's a good question. Lately, I've been doing more C programming. Um, it, it really just depends on what I what I need to work on at the time. Like lately, since I've been doing work on the garbage collector, that's all C C code. Whereas, like when I want to do here at RailsConf, I'm going to talk about improving the performance of templates, the template rendering system, and that's all Ruby. Yeah, the view Rails views. Um, I'm going to talk about that, and that's all Ruby code. Oh, so okay. It just depends on which parts I'm touching. Right. Next, I'd like to talk about something that I think when a lot of people think of Ruby and they think of performance, um, whether or not it's justified, they think of uh, what's called the global interpreter lock. Mm-hmm. So both Ruby and Python, and I'm not sure if there's other languages, they, they have this, this global interpreter lock, this skill. Yeah. Could you kind of define what that is? Sure. In Ruby 1.8, it was a GIL, global global interpreter lock. But now that we have a VM, it's a GVL, global VM, global VM lock. So basically what it does is it, it ensures that only one thread is scheduled on the machine at a time. Mm-hmm. That's that's all it does. So it, 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 it makes sure that only one thread can be scheduled on the machine at a time. Okay, so you can have multiple threads yes but only one of them can be being run at any given time yes exactly. exactly okay 
So what it means, I guess what it means is that um, there's actually a lot of nuances here too, because um, it's possible to uh, unlock that GVL. So you can say like, I want to execute outside of the outside of the GVL, but you have to do that in C. So let's say, for example, you have some kind of uh, CPU bound operation that uh, you would like to execute in parallel. So for example, maybe you're calculating a uh, let's say you're doing a Bitcoin SHA or something like that, and you have a library that's written in C, and that is CPU bound. So what you would say is in your in your C extension, you say, hey, I know this is CPU bound. I'm going to unlock now, let it do its thing, and then relock. And then that way the VM can schedule other threads to execute on the CPU at the same time. And you can do the same thing for IO operations as well. So as long as it's whatever operation that you're doing, as long as that operation doesn't need to call back into the Ruby virtual machine, you can unlock around that. A common example is that all the IO operations in Ruby, so if you say like file.read or socket.write or whatever, those will unlock the global ver the GVL and they'll that'll allow you to do things in parallel. So you could say like you could create a thousand threads and write to a thousand sockets in parallel. Uh, okay. Okay. So the the GVL th this is why I say there's nuance to this thing. The GVL schedules one thread on the CPU at a time for pure Ruby code. For pure, okay, just for Ruby code. Yes, okay. yes. So anything that's written in C, you have the possibility to unlock it. Mm -hmm. And you were just talking about how there are portions of, say, like the core API that are written in uh, C. Is that considered like a part of that C code that can run in parallel? Or yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we can say like in the, in the C code, the implementation for the right function it'll say like unlock we know that this is an io bound operation that does not need to call into the vm so we'll unlock now do the underlying underlying write call and then relock the vm so during that time when you're actually writing to the socket or whatever the vm can schedule another thread on the on the cpu to do something in parallel if i'm getting uh or i'm making web requests for example like i could make you know 100 at the same time and yeah. because it's actually the C code that is doing that work. They can all run simultaneously. In parallel, yep. okay. yeah. And then you were saying like, if you wanted to run things in parallel yourself, that could be done through a C extension? Yeah, you typically, if you want to run things truly in parallel, you have to do it through a C extension or use a C extension that, that knows how to unlock and relock the GVL correctly. So you, you can have parallelism just not using ruby code pure ruby code yes yes so you cannot run pure ruby code in parallel got it if you remove the gill what what breaks <laughs> tons of stuff <laughs> one example of stuff that breaks is basically all data structures in ruby are not thread safe so you could you could unlock the people have done this you can just take it out if you want if you don't schedule any threads everything will work fine. But if you schedule a thread and like two of those threads mutate the same hash, then you'll get a, a segv or something. You'll just get a segmentation fault. Okay, okay. So that's one benefit of this GVL. And that's the same in, I, I believe this is the same in Ruby and Python. Also JavaScript too. We don't have to have locks on those data structures because since only one thing can be scheduled at a time, you may get 
you may get race conditions because it's it's concurrent right but um you don't get segvs because it's not parallel the data structures or the implementation of things in Ruby are not thread safe. Mm -hmm. And I guess that allows the implementation maybe to be simpler. Yes. And um, I guess you're saying it's also the same way with Python. Yeah. And so is that the reason why, like, say, JRuby um, is able to remove the kill, I believe, right? Yes. And is that because they re-implemented all of the sort of core API things? Yeah, so they, they implement theirs with, um, I don't think that their hash implementation, hash, for example, but also array too. I don't think that those are thread safe, but on the JVM, you'll just get an error saying like, oh, you have a, you did a parallel update or whatever, oh, okay. right? Okay. But they do have thread safe data structures available to you too, because it's built on Java. Yeah. Yep. So they actually have a separate class you could use. So you could have like a thread safe array or something. I think so. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so, so I, th I believe JRuby and, and MRI will have the same issue. If you try to update one data structure in parallel, it's just that on JRuby, you get a nice exception. Yeah. Okay. And on MRI, you would get a SegV. <laughs> right. Right. Which is not, not ideal. Not, no, no, no. It's not as fun. I would rather look at an exception than a, than a, than a SegV. So. Right. And um, so you're saying Python is probably the same, same class, same right? Boat. Same yeah, boat, yeah. yeah. And then I'm not an expert in JavaScript, but I believe you don't have manual control over threads. Yeah, you right? don't have threads at all. Yeah. Okay. So, so is it is it it's like an implicit? Yeah. So it's like they don't have a gill. Or, no, but no, no. You, you just, can run. You can do I/O operations in parallel, the same as on Ruby, right? You can do those things. You can do those things in parallel. But since they they have the, they only schedule one one CPU operation at a time, it's functionally the same thing as having a GVL. There is no lock, but you just can't. You can't. Yeah, you can't make you can't make a thread anyway. So makes sense. There's a few options for concurrency within Ruby, right? Mm -hmm. You know, there's there's forking, right? Mm -hmm. So you can spawn a new process. Um, there's multi-threading, um, but that has limitations due to the gill. Yeah. Uh, and then I guess you have the ability to do an event loop, kind of like JavaScript or Node, mm -hmm. right? When you're developing in Ruby, like how how would a developer choose i guess what's the best model for them that's a that is a good question too it depends on the needs of your system i think at work we use a forking model mm -hmm. um and it seems to work like that form of parallelism seems to work fine for us um but you could also do like you could just use a threading web server for example, like uh, I think the default one with Rails now is Puma, which is a threading web server. And as long as your operations, like as long as your application is IO bound, mm -hmm. you'll get great parallelism out of the threading server. For example, you work at GitHub, right? So it's a mm -hmm. lot of, I guess, web or HTTP traffic. Honestly, I think a lot of our stuff is IO bound. Well, actually, that may not be true anymore. I think we have. Generating so it's it's kind of hard because like doing database stuff is clearly I/O like you're waiting on I/O mm -hmm. right yeah but when you like actually generate the HTML to send back down to the client that's gonna be CPU mm, okay before you send it and then when you send it it's I/O <laughs> and then, and that's primarily written in Ruby yes yeah 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 so we use um we use a forking model but i mean you can get great results out of a great results out of a threading model too it just depends on your application 
Honestly, if I was a new developer, what I would do is just go with the defaults. I would just use Puma, put it in, into production, wait to see what kind of scaling issues I have, and then make my decision based off of that. Okay, so probably start with threads. Yep. Okay. Yep. And then at GitHub, I believe you use Unicorn, right? Yes. Which is a web server that uses forks or additional processes for yes. concurrency. So does that mean, let's say, like a thousand people hit the site? Uh, is it spawning a process for each hit? Or like, how no, is that? No, we use a pre-forking model that forks. I, I don't remember how many processes, but it forks off like some, some number of processes. So we have a fixed essentially a fixed number of people that can be using our website concurrently. And if that gets full, then people are essentially put into a queue and we drain that queue. Just as an example, you spin up 50 processes and there's a queue in front of all those processes and it just passes it to each. Yep. Okay. Yep. Got it. When you use say JavaScript and you want to do something with concurrency, there's like concurrency primitives that are built in. Like for example, there are the concept of promises, mm -hmm. the async await keywords um, in Java and .NET, they have their own sort of task or concurrency related libraries. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you think would ever come to Ruby or? It's kind of hard to say because like you could think of a thread as essentially a promise. Sure, okay. Right, you could say like, I want you to execute this code and I don't care when you do it, I want to get the value at a later date. And then you'd ask the thread, hey, are you done? And then when it's, actually there's a method on, on thread in Ruby, you can say dot value and that'll actually block, like oh, when you okay. call it, it'll block until a thread finishes right, with right. whatever it's doing. So you could spin off a thread and let it do whatever. I'm not sure what the fundamental differences between that and a promise are because both are just saying, I want you to compute this and I will get the value at a later date. Yeah, I think like, and it, it may be certain things like being able to chain calls together. Yeah. Um, for example, you can say in JavaScript, I want to run this HTTP call. Then this and, one. And, yeah, and like yeah, depending yeah. on the result of that one, run this one. Sure. And it's sort of written in like a flat structure so you can kind of... Yeah, you could do it. So it's, I think that Ruby has all the primitives to do something like that. Just um, if you want to have an API like that, you have to use a gem, right, for example. Right, right, right. We also have fibers, which you can think of as essentially coroutines. There's, they're threads, but uh, you have to implement your own scheduling model, basically. So there's that that too and then of course like koichi's working on guilds but that's different than promises <laughs> so i think i mean it, it depends on what you want to accomplish if you want to accomplish execute this thing for me mm -hmm. you can do it <laughs> right right and like like you said there are there are gems or packages where people have built sort of these concurrency i guess building blocks yes um so if you want to use promises or you want to use something like async await, like mm -hmm. you, you can, it's just through a gem rather a than gem. being yeah, yeah. Um, in the standard library or the mm -hmm. core. Yep. You mentioned fibers. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that because at the Ruby conference, Ruby Kaigi, they were talking about a new web server called Falcon by Samuel Williams that uses fibers for concurrency. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't sure how that was different than using threads or processes. Yeah, I, to be honest, I need to study how he's doing that exactly or how that library is written exactly because essentially all fibers are is um, 
their coroutines. You say like you run a fiber and inside the fiber you can say, hey, uh, I want to switch off to something else now. It's truly, imagine that you had you had threads and you had to implement your own scheduler for the threads. Mm-hmm. That is what fibers are. It's like you, they're essentially a thread, Yeah. but you need to say like, hey, I want to pass off now. I want somebody else to handle, like do something. So where threads, it's that, that scheduling is automatic by the operating system. Yeah. By the operating system. Um, whereas these fibers, the scheduling is manual. You have to say, Hey, go, go do this other thing now. And so like you would be able to say, okay, go do this other thing, but you have to have some way of coming back to the fiber, right? Yes. Yeah. You'd have to, so that other thing has to go back and say like, Hey, I'm done now. You go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you have to manage, like you have to manage that, and that's why I think it sounds like a pain. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's not something you want to think about if you're like building your app, right? Is yeah, like how yeah. to schedule how to schedule that stuff exactly, which is why I say I need to study how this web server works because honestly, it sounds like a huge pain. <laughs> and the the other the other thing is that um, when you use when you use threads with Ruby, as I was saying earlier, I/O operations will unlock the unlock the GVL, which gives the VM an opportunity to schedule other threads on the CPU. Right, right. Whereas if you're doing that with a fiber, fibers do not run in parallel, and it doesn't know the scheduler doesn't know. Mm, okay. So you would have to say like, I'm going to do an I/O operation. I'll switch, I'll switch fibers, or like I don't even know how it would work. <laughs> I guess what you're saying is like with fibers, I mean, you're doing the scheduling yourself, so you could have 10 sort of concurrent tasks where you're jumping between them going, I'm going to do a little bit of this, a little bit of this, but they still can't run in parallel because they never, they never drop down to C, I guess, or drop down into the Ruby runtime to say like, Hey, this is the, you're never running, so you're never running a thread. Like, there's no thread. It's just there's no thread. Oh, okay, yeah. So there's no thread. There's so you no can't threads. have parallelism. Yeah, you can't have parallelism. Oh, okay, okay, got it. So I say you need to study it because I, I I feel skeptical. Right. <laughs> uh, maybe you guys can have a conversation. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Next, I'd like to talk about the work being done to add a just-in-time compiler to Ruby. There's a lot of excitement around that lately. Do you expect a pretty big difference in performance? It's hard to say right now. Like if you look at if you run the JIT against um, CPU bound programs, it works pretty well. Okay. Like if you take a, a, one of the benchmarks that we use is we have an NES an NES emulator. Yeah. Uh, and that's written in Ruby. And if you use the JIT with the NES emulator, you get really good results. Like it's it's much faster. Yeah. But if you use the JIT with a Rails application, it actually slows down the Rails oh, application. Oh, okay. <laughs> Although uh, Kokobun, the person working on the JIT, he's giving a presentation here at RailsConf. So maybe he has some new numbers, but the last time I saw numbers, it like it actually made your Rails app slower. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> not, not maybe not what they were going for. No, through, no, no. I, don't yeah, think that's, yeah, yeah. I don't think that's what we're going for. Yeah, but yeah. I do, I do have pretty high hopes for uh-huh. it. So, is is there anything specific about Rails you think that makes it slow with the current implementation of the JIT? I don't know for sure, but I would suspect that it's due to a lot of the well. First off, the number of method calls that we make. So it's this JIT is a method method based JIT. Uh, so you need to you need to do some tweaking to say like how many methods you want cached or how many methods you want compiled. And 
Rails calls a lot of methods. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, Rails also has a lot of indirection. So I think those two factors may be inhibiting the JIT. So when you refer to indirection, is that like a method calling a method calling, calling a method? method. Exactly. Oh, yes, okay. Yes. okay. Yeah. And so for a JIT, I guess it's it's better to have a I guess shorter stack. Yeah. 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 And I think I mean it may be it may be fine. It may be okay. It's just that I really think it's the number of methods that are involved. Since we're calling so many methods, it's just bad it's bad for the jit essentially and i think we another thing is that a lot of the i believe a lot of the meta programming that we do in rails some of the things that we do in there i don't know what specifically uh but some of the things we do in there will um invalidate cause invalidations in the jit so to to give an example like when you say invalidation like the jit is compiling like certain functions down to machine code is that yes. right but then Rails does something to the function. So, for example, let's say you had a let's say you had a simple method that was like you know one plus two or something, right? And that got jitted jitted out to machine code. But then later on, say somebody adds the days method to the number class, right? Now now the method tables are different. The shape of that day the shape of that type is different. And because of that we have to invalidate this we have to invalidate this jitted method. So I don't know all of the things that would do that. But I'm also pretty confident that if there are things that do that, Rails does them. Okay. <laughs> takes full advantage yes, of uh, meta programming. Yes, yeah. exactly. It takes yeah. full advantage of those things yeah. that would mess it up. So. <laughs> the same thing you told people maybe don't do. Yeah, right? maybe don't do that. Yes. <laughs> Very cool. Is there is there anything else you wanted to mention, or I think we should have talked about? I don't know. We can talk about my GC work. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds good. Before we do that, let's maybe just quickly define um, what GC does and what its role is. Yeah, sure. So G, the GC is for, I mean, GC technology is very old. It was invented in the 70s with Lisp. And essentially what it does is manage memory for you. So you don't have to malloc and free things on your own. It's just managed by this thing called a garbage collector. It just takes care of that stuff for you and you don't need to think about it. Yeah. So basically like rather than in C, you know, you would have to uh, allocate memory and you would have to free the memory when you're yes. done with it. Otherwise it would just continue to grow. Yep. Right. Yeah. Um, GC sort of just takes care of that for takes you. Takes care right? of that for you. Yep. And um, i trying to think if we have time to sort of do a whirlwind tour of like, you know, Ruby's GC journey, or we should just jump to your kind of uh, current work. I can give you, I can give you an overview of what the the technology that it currently uses. It's a so, like I said, I don't know how into the weeds we want to get here, but Ruby's Ruby's garbage collector is con, it's a concurrent garbage collector, so it runs concurrently with the program. Uh, it's a generational GC, so it uses it's a generational mark and sweep garbage collector that has. Um, I'm just throwing out all the buzzwords yeah, here, so yeah. people can look them up later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we could we could maybe go a little bit into so the to mark and sweep, for example, right? Yes, uh, that's like finding all the objects that are not Alive. being used yeah, right, or yeah. are being used, and then it's actually pausing the program, right? And then doing its work to figure out what's being used and then remove the things that aren't. Yes, exactly. And then you, you mentioned um, concurrent GC, yes. right? So 
uh, I guess that's just they're all happening at the same time or yeah so what basically what the what the GC does is we have um, so it's a it's a generational it's also a generational garbage collector but it uses um, the three color uh, <laughs> algorithm look this up later <laughs> but basically what this what this algorithm allows you to it uses tricolor marking is what it's called it's called tricolor marking and what this algorithm allows you to do is it allows you to pause in the middle of the marking step so you don't need to like yes you have you have to stop the program to perform gc but because you can do it incrementally it means that you pause for a short amount of time and then you let the you let the program continue so you have more frequent pause times, but those pause times are shorter and the throughput of your, the overall throughput of your program is higher, right. essentially. It's the same concept. It's marking objects and throwing them away, but it can do like a little bit a little at bit a time, time. Yep. so that your application has like a lot of quick pauses rather than long pauses. Long pauses. Okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it uh, uses the tricolor marking techniques so that it can do that. Right, so it's generational. It's generational too. So it looks at uh, it looks at old objects less frequently than it looks at new objects, which also speeds up the speeds up the GC. So it can put them into categories. Like it can look at an object that is frequently being used, and it can say like, okay, I probably don't have to look at this one for a while because um, I've noticed it's getting used constantly. Is that, uh, is that- it, it uses age. So when it was like. If some object comes to life and the GC runs, say, three times, and that object was able to survive three GCs, then it's like, uh, we'll look at you. Like, maybe we don't need to look at you so frequently, right? Then the other, the other technique it uses is a thing called lazy sweeping, which is essentially the same, a similar technique to the tricolor marking in that you don't need to halt the program it can it sweeps it sweeps objects away incrementally so it'll pause and sweep and pause and sweep so essentially the same idea is that you get short pause times and higher throughput right okay and then the technique that i am working on is a compactor which is uh basically for reducing heap fragmentation so you'll end up with the garbage collector like because of these the algorithms that it's using, you'll end up with essentially holes in your heap where you have, you know, a place where there's no object anymore. Uh, and this compaction, uh, the compactor that I have finished, and it's going to be in Ruby 2.7, it essentially allows you to get rid of the holes in those he- in the heap. Okay. So it's like, as we're creating a bunch of objects, they're all getting like put into memory, but they're getting put like all over the place, right? Or Well, yeah, they're put, I mean, they're put like they're all put into a row like the, you keep adding them to a list essentially but but you know um let's say a gc occurs and some of those ones previously died and they went away so now you get holes there so you'll end up with like you just end up with these holes in it and you can you can use a compactor to compress and get rid of those holes and what that means is the benefits are essentially more efficient use of uh, memory it takes a while maybe to notice that you have all those holes and fill them in. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we compact it, it can reduce, like we say we put all these long lived objects together. Maybe we don't need to look at those pages as frequently different. We can use different techniques to basically speed up the speed up the GC and mutator with that. It's kind of like going back to the generational concept 
where you were saying long-lived objects, right? You maybe don't need to look at. Yeah. And you can keep them all together, like during this compacting process. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So that's that's what I've been working on, and I am I am excited about it. That is what I. I'm excited about it because I wrote it. It took me like three years to write the stupid thing. <laughs> I, I think like what's what's great about that though is that when you work on something, it affects all Ruby applications, right? Yes. So you know you can you can work three years in this case, and if you get like let's say a ten percent decrease in memory usage or something like that, that is. You know that is across it's everyone's yeah, that's so everybody. Yeah, everybody yeah. that's using Ruby is like they're decreased. Yes, yeah, it's it's cool. Yeah, so that's like that's that's fantastic. It's like more than just oh, I'm you know I'm optimizing my app and I, I made it like I made it faster. You know that's cool, but like you're like I just made two million apps faster. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. That's so that's awesome. One of the things that motivates me to work on stuff like that. Yeah, it's like it's not just not just me and our app in particular. It's like everybody. Yeah. So, so like, would you say the primary benefit with the compaction is it speed? Is it reduced memory usage? Like, what's the the main gain? That it's hard. So it's hard to say. It depends. So one one of the things that we're looking at. So weird. You have to say like whenever you're looking at performance stuff, you always have to say like it depends. Yeah. <laughs> Developers uh, love that answer. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> If someone doesn't say, if someone doesn't say it depends, they're probably lying. Yeah, to you. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so in this in this case, we use I mentioned before we use a forking forking web server, and for when you fork off children, the children share memory with the parent process, right? Uh, but one of the issues is that I'll briefly explain the copy on write copy on write performance technique is essentially like. You fork off a child, the child process shares memory with the parent. They like it has as far as the child is concerned, it has the same memory that the parent has, right? But that's not actually what's happening. What's happening is the OS is the operating system basically has a pointer back to the parent's memory. Okay. So if you have a program that consumes four megabytes, if you fork a child process, you don't suddenly have eight megabytes. You still have four but you have two processes. So you didn't actually gain any memory. You didn't, yeah. You were able to get two processes, but you didn't You didn't double your memory usage. However, if the child process writes to the memory, clearly you don't want the parent process to be written to as well, right? Right. Uh, so what the operating system will do is it'll say, okay, if you're writing to this region of memory, I'm going to copy... Th- whatever memory was in the parent process, I'm going to actually copy that to you now. Okay. So you get the child process gets a copy of that. And that's the, the copy and write optimization is so that you can have two processes that don't consume twice the memory. Oh, okay. But when you write to that memory, you get a copy so that it's safe. Oh, okay. So when it, when you first fork a process, um, as long as you're only reading, it's actually reading the memory from the original process. So if I had like an object, like a like a string or something, and I read it from the second process. It would actually be reading the first uh, processes yes. string. Yep. But then, as soon as I mutate it, um, then I get my own copy. Yep, exactly. Got it. Yep. So they can maintain isolation from each other. So where this issue comes into play is that so let's say you allocate a bunch of objects, and then some of them get GC'd, and now you've got these holes in your heap. Mm-hmm. You fork a child. Yeah. Now the child just 
you're doing something innocuous, like you're allocating an object, but it gets allocated into an, an unused slot. And that's a write. Okay. Okay. So unfortunately what that means is that, so the, the operating system, when it copies memory, it doesn't copy just the memory that you wrote to. Okay. It copies, it has to copy in fixed sizes. Uh, okay. So on Linux, I think it's 4k. Mm -hmm. Uh, so even though you wrote this maybe tiny object, mm -hmm. you'll end up getting 4k copied to your child process. And you could possibly get like the object you wanted and then like A pieces of, of whatever yes. is left. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So my idea here is that if we compact the heap before forking, there will be no, there will be no spaces for you to allocate any, allocate any objects into. So now the child process when it allocates a new object, it'll allocate it off into an empty, like an empty location, something that's not shared, right? The issue is that eventually, if you're, eventually, if you have holes everywhere, eventually all of it's going to be copied to the child process. Whereas if we don't have any holes, then none of it will be copied to the child oh, process. Oh, interesting. Very cool. So that's one, that's one thing. And there's some other, there's some other optimizations, like it could it's possible it could increase performance, but um, with the particular algorithm that I implemented, it's unlikely. Uh, there's other compaction algorithms that I plan that would be more that would be better for performance, and I plan to implement those later, um, but not now. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you got no, enough I mean, on, enough on your plate. Well, right? the the thing is like, so for a very long time, people kept saying that writing a compactor for Ruby was, or for MRI was not possible. Like you just couldn't do it, but I figured out a way to do it. And the way that I do it is independent of the actual compaction algorithm. Hmm. Okay. Uh, so what it means is I just chose like the easiest compaction algorithm. Cause that's not really the problem I was trying yeah, to solve. Yeah, right. Yeah. I was trying to solve like, is this actually possible? Right. And then once we figure out, Oh yeah, it, it is possible we can do this now i'll implement a more like a more efficient and more performance friendly technique what was the specific part of ruby that people said like it couldn't be done so the main issue is that is c extensions mm -hmm. so when you if you allocate like let's say i i allocate a, an object in ruby and i pass that object to a c extension the c extension gets the address of that object and it's a direct address. So if that C extension were to save the address somewhere and then the compactor ran and that object got moved, mm, yeah. then the address is wrong. Right, and the C right. side would say fault. Yeah, the C to... side, exactly, yeah. yes, okay. yes. Okay. So the, what I did was essentially, I piggybacked off of the mark function. So when you, if you have a C extension and you have a reference to a Ruby object, you're supposed to implement mark and sweep functions and you're supposed to mark that pointer so what i did is i said okay any object that gets marked we don't allow it to move uh okay so internally ruby uses a different marking marking function than c extensions use oh interesting so that was that was also part of the work that i had to do is say like okay what we're gonna do is we're gonna take this this public api that everybody uses yeah we'll ensure that those objects do not move Ruby's internal one, we're going to do something completely different because we know what to do. We'll, we can handle the situation. Right, right. 
So that was the that was essentially the technique I came up with. And after doing that, what it means is that certain portions, certain objects can't move, but it also means safety for your C extensions. So that means that when it comes to C extensions, does that mean there will always be like holes, I guess, in terms of the compaction? No, not necessarily, because the 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 way Ruby's GC works or the way its allocator works is it it allocates a page. It's essentially an arena and a memory arena of each page is about 16K, I think. Uh, basically, we allocate objects out of that out of that arena. And then um, your heap is composed of multiple pages. So obviously, you, you probably want your program to use more than 16K. Sure. <laughs> but that's more than enough for anyone, right? Yeah, that's more than enough for anyone. So, so we have multiple pages. But what I did is I said the I take those pages and the compactor sorts them by the number of unmovable objects they have okay so then we just pack around all of those unmovable objects okay so even though we have some that can't move we can still make sure that everything yeah is solid. yeah interesting okay so that it seems to work well and then um, I also introduced a compaction callback for C extensions hmm. So let's say you have a C extension and you want to support the compactor. Um, you can register a callback that'll say like, every time the compactor runs, your this callback will get called, and you have your C extension has an opportunity to update its update its own references. Ah, uh, okay. So there's another function that you can call and say, hey, here's a reference I have. Is this right? Mm -hmm. And then the GC will tell you oh, yes, that's fine, or no, it's actually now in this location, you need to update it. So if you have control over the C code, then you can actually, um, you can say like, I want to allocate this memory, and if you move it... Let me know. Yeah. And then, so my pointer will still continue to point at the right location, even if it got moved. Yes. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that's I I'm I'm excited about yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's that's cool, uh, and I'm learning a lot too. Like, yeah, it's it's like when you program in a high level language like you know Ruby or Python mm -hmm. or even Java. Like, it's like you don't you don't really think about what's happening under the hood, and mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's just it's just awesome how much you know how much goes into it. Yeah, I I think that's I think that's really good though. Like, you shouldn't. I think most programmers shouldn't really have to think about that type mm -hmm. of stuff. Mm -hmm. Like really you just want to be like you want to be writing your app or whatever yeah. whatever problem it is yeah, that you're yeah, trying yeah. to solve yeah. so i think it's actually cool that we have abstractions like that that you don't have to you don't have to bother with yeah yeah awesome well i'm glad you're on the case <laughs> <laughs> thank you <laughs> is there anything else that you want to mention or <sighs> not i can't think of anything else no no i mean jit's super exciting just I think Ruby's future is very bright. Mm -hmm. So on the heels of Ruby Kaigi, seeing all the awesome announcements at that conference, like I'm really excited. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like, and, and maybe it's a not a correct perception, but it seemed like um, Ruby as a language, it didn't seem like there was a lot of big changes happening, at least from the outside. Um, and then it seems like, there are a ton of things that are coming all at all at once. Does that does that sort of sound? I think so. Yeah that that sounds that sounds truthy to me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we don't like. I don't think there are huge like language level changes, but I think that the underlying technology right. and the new developments mm -hmm. and stuff, like new libraries and stuff yeah. that are coming out, it's just like. 
I feel like there is a new life, I guess. It's just like, I think right now is a very exciting time. Very cool. What are some good resources for someone who wants to learn more about the Ruby runtime or learn more about the work you're doing? I would suggest a book called Ruby Under a Microscope. That book is very good about Ruby internals. It teaches like it covers Ruby internals really well. Yeah, yeah. So I recommend I recommend that book. For the stuff I'm doing, me in particular, my I really enjoy a book called GC Handbook. I actually stole like all of my everything from there. <laughs> Basically, I read the book and I was yeah. like, "Huh, that's a good idea. Yeah. Maybe I'll write. I'll do that." Yeah. <laughs> that's software development. Yeah. Right? You, you read someone's paper or someone's. Yeah, uh, like, yeah, yeah. You're yeah. like, "Oh, that's a good yeah, idea. Yeah. I'll do that." <laughs> Genius, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> nice. So I write like I recommend like if you're interested in GC like GC topics, I recommend that one. Um, compiler books. I don't know. There's like, there's a lot of compiler books out there. I mean, but the best one that's, I think the best book that's specific to Ruby internals would be the, uh, Ruby under a microscope for sure. Yeah. I had a chance to kind of go through it and it's, Mm. it's really, it's really fantastic. Yeah. It's great. It's great. It's in depth. Um, it's how old is that book now? Maybe three years. Yeah, I think it got reprinted or something through No Starch. Mm. Maybe yeah, maybe twenty fourteen. I, I don't know. It's so it's. I mean, obviously, like books age. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's like it's still. I would say that it's like very accurate still. For today. sure. Finally, how can people follow you? Uh, you can follow me. <laughs> my nickname is Tenderlove. You can find me on Twitter with that name and also on my GitHub with that name and also on my Instagram with that name. I don't have a SoundCloud, though. <laughs> but it's coming. <laughs> it's coming, yes. Don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Aaron, thank you so much for yeah. coming on the show. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.